0: All right, everyone, whenever you're ready, I am recording. This is Ira in sports, ninety-five nine one oh six point nine. We are honored to have Paul Westhead, uh, one of the most famous coaches in basketball. He coached the LA Lakers to a title, and he also coached Loyola Marymount, one of the most exciting basketball teams ever. And he, he just came out with a book called The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball. Thanks a lot, Paul, for coming on Ira in Sports.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Ira.
0: So... I was asking. I know that you Philadelphia and everything, and I, I worked. I went for Coach Fran Dumphy at the University of Pennsylvania. I was a statistician. Oh my gosh! So Fran's been on our show a couple times, and and I called him last last night. I said, "Now, what's your? You know, did you guys miss because he he played at LaSalle, and you coached like right after?" And I, I didn't know if you actually overlapped, but he, he said you you over you missed him by like a month.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Fran graduated before I arrived, but. Uh... Uh, We were neighbors for a number of years in the Drexel Hill community outside of uh, – in Delaware County, outside of Philadelphia. So I know Franny very well. He's a terrific coach.
0: Yeah, and he he says hello. He says hello to you. But uh, you grew up in Philly, and you were not – one of the great all-star players that we think from Philly. You know, there's been a lot of great – you were. You got cut by your high school basketball team three times. And by, but you worked and worked and worked. You were able to be, you know, go to St. Joe's on a scholarship, which is great. But what insight, you know, as someone who was not a superstar but actually grew and developed as a player, did it help you later on when you're coaching players because you're not always going to have superstars?
1: well i I had a lot of time uh when I got to St Joe's under coach Jack Ramsey sitting on the bench observing <laughs> him and and his team and and how he made adjustments in the game. It is kind of humorous though uh years later when when I was coaching i I said to one of my players, i said, well, you know the the B play and he looked at me he said, "I have no idea what you're talking about coach and i I did not remember any of Ramsey's plays so One truism that I've found out over the years, basketball players, for the most part, don't know the plays that coaches give them. They (laughs) act like they do, but they really don't.
0: (laughs) So, and then you've got, when you're done, you were going to be a professor. But instead you had this, this itch to coach, but it was hard to find jobs you were coaching, you trying to get it. you got turned down by two high school jobs really, trying to get that, but you finally latched on to LaSalle to St Joseph as assistant and then went to LaSalle and had a career there. But all in Philadelphia, so that was exciting to be in that Philadelphia scene, which is everybody we've talked about Coach Dumphy and other players, you know what a great area to just ha- be involved in basketball
1: yeah, I mean that's my whole background you know I grew up in the streets of West Philadelphia and then uh, went to West Catholic High School and then the Saint Joseph's College, and so uh, you know, as as I mentioned in the book, my my grade point average was 3.4 and my points per game average was 2.3. So uh, I I was more a scholar than I was a player, but uh, I always had the the urge to to coach basketball, and and finally got a chance. Uh, Uh, When I came to Cheltenham High School, I actually coached in high school for five years before I went to college.
0: Wow. So you're at LaSalle. You you were, I think, eight years at LaSalle. And Jack McKinney, uh, who is someone who you played for before, says he, he's got a job at the Lakers as the head coach, and he asked you to be the assistant. So that's quite a jump, going from an, a LaSalle head coach to the assistant coach to the Lakers. And at that time, as you wrote in your book, there wasn't like the 20 assistants they have on the bench. There was just one assistant, so you were the yeah, assistant to the Lakers.
1: Yeah, I was it, Ira, and when Jack called me, uh, he said, I'd like you to be my assistant. It took me about six seconds <laughs> to say Yes. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, So, I mean, it was a great opportunity that Jack McKinney gave me, and uh, coming to Los Angeles literally changed my life and my family's life.
0: And you joined the team at a time where it's not like this isn't just any team. You have... Arguably the greatest player of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, on the team. They just drafted Magic Johnson, so this is uh, this is the definitely the excitement of the NBA and basketball and and what we talk about those times. And, and you talked in your book how you immediately befriended Kareem and started that long relationship you had for that you carried over till to this day. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, my relationship with Kareem started out in the right foot. I walked in to a practice that was going on, Jack McKinney said, why don't you go down the other end and work with Kareem? He was doing something else. I said, okay. So I went down, and he was in the low post, so I passed him the ball, and he shot it and made a jump hook, and I passed it 25 times in a row. He made all 25 of them, and he looked at me, and he said, thank you very much. I said, well, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, I, I went back to Jack, and I said, you know, this coaching in the NBA is really easy. <laughs> But what I didn't figure out was that's exactly how Kareem wanted you to handle him. He did not want you to overcoach him. He did not want you to preach to him about what he should do or shouldn't do. So I was the perfect fit for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
0: So you're 12 games into your first year. This is back in 1979. And uh, you're 12 games into your, into your first your assistant coaching, and Coach McKinney has a bicycle accident and is injured in the hospital and cannot coach, and you're suddenly thrust into You didn't know if you were going to be coaching one game the rest of the year, and it was just a weird situation, which we don't see a lot in sports where you see a head coach unable to coach and then suddenly assistant thrust into the coaching duties.
1: Well, uh, this was really unusual back then. Uh, When Jack was in the hospital, the next day, we had a game. So I went to the shoot-around, and when I showed up, it was the players, the trainer, and me. (laughs) So it was either the trainer was going to run the team or I was going to run the team. So talk about out of default. uh, You know, I took over out of default, and even in that game, That evening, uh, we're losing to the very end. And I'm saying to myself, well, this is my last game. And uh, Jamal Wilkes makes a spectacular jump shot, and we win. And, you know, I I live another day and and eventually uh, uh, get to coach the team for the season.
0: And then you had a chance to choose an assistant because you were going to get one, your one assistant and something, we're down here in South Florida and West Palm Beach, but you chose Pat Riley, who was just the broadcaster to be your assistant. I know they were pushing Elgin Baylor, but you chose Pat Riley to be, and as his first, I guess his first coaching job was to be your assistant.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, uh, I had to uh, two or three times go to Jerry Buss, the owner, and he would look at me like, uh, who do you want again? I'd say, Uh, Pat Riley, and he'd say, I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, But eventually uh, he he said, okay, and and Pat became my assistant. And uh, uh, he was the perfect fit because I knew him from uh, traveling with him in the early part of the season. He knew the league, he knew players. uh, So uh, he gave me what I didn't have, the knowledge of the NBA.
0: Wow, and then your coaching – so you're entrusted in this mix where you have this, all this talent, you have Magic, you have Kareem, you have Wilkes, and suddenly McKinney is getting better, so it's, the question is, can he come back and coach? Are you going to still coach? And you discuss in the book how difficult, because you're meeting with Jerry Buss, you're meeting with, the, with your team, and it was like, through. so not only did you have to coach a team, you actually had to deal with the fact that maybe the coach is going to come back and try to coach, and it wasn't even resolved until like the last week of the season that you were going to coach it through the playoffs.
1: Yeah, that was a tough time, uh, Ira, to be honest, because uh, everything that I had going for me uh, was due to Jack McKinney. So the very person uh, who got you there is now trying desperately to recover from injury and to return to his role as head coach. Um, the bus and his doctors... Uh, determined that Jack was not ready to return this season. So it uh, was really out of my hands. And uh, uh, because of that, I, I finished the year.
0: So and then you get to take the team to the NBA Finals, 1980 NBA Finals, some, the most, one of the most famous basketball games of all time. But first in Game 5, Kareem got hurt in the game in the, in, in uh, the forum in, in LA, he gets hurt in the game and still finished out of the game, hitting a game winning shot. And then you fly to Philly and you make one of the decisions that people talk about forever is we're going to, who's our center. And you decide to start magic Johnson, the rookie guard, uh, point guard at center.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I did make that decision and it was on the flight to Philly yet, you know, uh, to be honest again, I looked around and I didn't have many choices uh, the only other big man we that could fit would be Jim Jones, who was our starting p- power forward. They did decide to, to do magic because uh, it was like symbolic that uh, we had this young uh, player who can do many things, and uh, I hope that he would confuse the Sixers, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, he was spectacular in his uh, his his play that night scoring 42 points.
0: So, and then you come back uh, for the second your second year. after you won the title, come back the second year, and then you're dealing with what really has been, you know, the whole Kobe Bryant-Chack thing, which some of our listeners have heard from a more modern time, but the fact that Magic wants to say, this is my team, and Kareem is like, no, I'm the all-star, one of the all-time greats. And it was like this friction between Kareem and Magic, and you're sort of in the middle of this, plus you have the ownership, and, and you're dealing with all these issues for that second year that was really difficult. But, you know, something that other you know, coaches have dealt with in the past, in the future since
1: then yeah that's, i i never thought of the kobe shack uh, combo but it was probably similar and the the difference well the reality was that because of his excellence and proven excellence i sided with kareem abdul jabbar he he was the man for this team he was the one when it was crunch time I wanted the ball to go to. I wanted him to take the last crucial shot because uh, he he never faltered and he had years of experience behind him. So uh, I picked Kareem as my leader.
0: Yeah, and then, unfortunately, so in the third year, so you were there one year, it was sort of most of what, the first year, the second year, your full year, come back your third year, um, and you hadn't won the, you hadn't, you lost in their first round of the playoffs that, that other year, come back your third year, and that's when the friction really develops between Magic and Kareem and you, and, and, you know, this is something that really hasn't been discussed about, and that's why your book is excellent, because you haven't talked about this much, but just the whole dynamics of what happened, did Magic force you out, did Magic make the demands, how that was going, because you were forced out, I guess, in the, before the 12th game of that season, uh, between and the friction between you, Magic, and even the team?
1: Well, yeah, there, there's a couple of components that, uh, that I, I do talk about. One was, in, in fairness to Magic Johnson, uh, he had uh, knee surgery the season before, and uh, I could tell right away that he was not the same Magic Johnson of his rookie year. So he was still working out his his game he just had lost the step and and for great athletes when they lose a step they're not the same players and it, and it kind of works on them so that was working on magic um, I did have an issue with him in Salt Lake City uh, at the end of the game he missed an assignment and he wasn't really paying attention at timeout so I talked to him after the game by himself in another locker room not to Uh, confront him with the team and he unfortunately took it the wrong way and said he didn't want to play anymore for us and the next day Jerry Buss fired me so uh, Magic's objection forced me out but to be honest I think the Lakers were looking to move me they they were unsatisfied they weren't happy with uh, how I was coaching even though it was a five-game winning streak we just completed.
0: And it was funny, you said in the book that you were replaced because they said they won at Showtime, which Pat Riley is synonymous with now the word Showtime, but you really then after that started to be, you know, you created Showtime because they said you didn't play fast enough and now you're known as the fastest coach ever. (laughs) So I thought that was ironic. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's very ironic, Ira, because, you know, Ever since my LaSalle days in the seventies, if there's any one thing I always did, I always pushed the envelope. I always wanted to play fast. And and I think much of the discontent among the players was that I was trying to play too fast and they didn't like that kind of ritual.
0: So and just to find it, so you after the Lakers and you sort of refined your theory as about basketball and and, and think about the you know, maybe 100,000 basketball coaches, you are best known for this speed game and the idea of running to spots on the floor, triangle rebounding. You even were so careful because you wanted to get the rebound so fast that you had the people pull the nets down so they could, uh, so they could get the ball out of the net. And then the referees, by the end of the games that you're coaching, the referees stopped running up and down the floor. They would stay at midcourt. So, talk about the whole idea about the speed game and, uh, and your thoughts behind it.
1: Well, my, my thoughts behind a speed game uh, is very simple. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, we were better at running fast break when the other team scored. That's why I was worried about the nets. We, we were better taking the ball out of the net and running our fast break. We could do that in three seconds. On a missed shot, a defensive rebound, it took us a little longer, maybe five or six seconds, because everybody's not in a set position. But my whole concept was get the ball down court, take a quick shot before the defense gets ready. I mean, I'm not good enough to coach five against five. I wanted to have five on three or five on two. Uh, So I was greedy. I wanted easier (laughs) shots. And the way you get easier shots is you have to get down there quickly.
0: So, and it was, this was a day, time when people weren't using the threes as much. So, you talked in your book how what Golden State is doing is not what your speed game it's is. Not. Golden State's completely different. They're actually setting up and running plays that you're not. You're nothing like Golden State.
1: Correct. I mean, I, uh, I admired Golden State over the last half dozen years. Uh, they they made me like the speed of their game, but it wasn't like me. They uh, they just went down pretty fast and found uh, Thompson and Curry open and they just bombed away. My team wanted to get the quickest shot. So if we could get a a lead lob pass or a layup in two seconds, we did that. We weren't that conscious of of three-point shots.
0: And then you were able to apply this theory to Loyola Marymount. And I, I've been to Loyola's gym. It's very small. But you go to Loyola and you get lucky, the fact that Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, two of the best college basketball players I've ever seen, decide to transfer to Loyola. And you're like, okay, I might have the team that I can you know, experiment with this and see what could happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's my career in coaching changed when Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, and also – Corey Gaines came from UCLA. So the three of them uh, just embellished our talent level that they wanted to play fast. They had the ability to play fast, and they committed to it. So everyone followed their lead. So everything changed with, with the acquisition of Hank and Bo and Corey.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't just playing. You're also pressing on defense. So not only are you playing fast on offense, you're pressing on defense, and it's hard to find people to buy into that, especially superstars like Kimball and Gathers, but they just loved it. And you mentioned in your book how Gathers not only led the, the country in scoring but also rebounding because the point is if you're going to miss your shot and you're on a fast break, the, a guy like Gathers who's running down real fast can get the rebound and lay it up all the time.
1: Yeah, you hit uh, you upon uh, the crucial success of the fast break. With the quick shot uh, and with the defense not really ready to defend, there is this golden opportunity that after the shot, rebounds are abundant because they're not blocking you out like they would against normal half-court defense. So players like Hank Gathers, they just flourish with uh, my players like Jeff Fryer who shot threes in a quarter of a second. He'd shoot them anywhere and gathers and kimball uh we just go down the lane and get second shot so it re- it was really the second shot that made my fast break offense work
0: we're talking to legendary coach paul westhead on ninety-five nine one hundred six point nine water 6.9 west palm beach uh, that 89-90 year, I, I, some of the most classic games of all time. You played an overtime game against Shaquille O'Neal and Chris Jackson. It was 148-141 to 141 in a college basketball game, which is amazing. You beat Gary Payton at Oregon State. Um, just an amazing, a ranked number 22 in the country. I remember watching all, the, all your games. So much fun to watch. You go into the tournament. And into your into the conference tournament, ready to set like this is our chance. We're good. you know you you guys who were in the book how we had a chance to win the, the national championship, and then Hank gathers unfortunately passes away in the second game of the tournament.
1: Yeah, I mean that that changed everything. Uh, it's actually been uh, thirty years ago. Uh, they actually uh, erected a, a statue for Hank uh, and all the players and coaches returned to Loyola Marymount a couple months ago to honor him. And it really feels like three seconds ago, uh, this uh, giant of a man uh, dunking the ball and coming back to play defense and collapsing and never getting up. Uh, the, the grief that we experience uh, then and now is, is ongoing.
0: And you mentioned in the book how Eric Spolstra, the coach of the Heat, was right there when he when he collapsed, only a few feet away.
1: Yes, uh, Eric was was on the Portland team, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, he he was you know he was right near Hank, but uh, all of us were like you know, totally stunned.
0: But, you know, amazingly, the entire team rallied around Bo Kimball, around the memory of Hank, and then you went on this uh, tremendous run in the NCAA tournament where you beat New Mexico State, you beat defending champ Michigan, and then you beat Alabama. Uh, So then you, in the Elite Eight, you faced UNLV, who ended up becoming – our, you know the national champion, one of the arguably one of the best teams of all time, and a team that you played earlier in the season and felt comfortable that you had a chance to beat, and uh, but you but you lost it. But what a run in that tournament for the three wins that you had, and also the game against UNLV.
1: Yeah, I mean it was a, it was a great run, and, and to be honest, Ira, the, the the players had taken on a different approach. Uh, they they were doing it for Hank Gathers, but they could care less about winning or losing they just wanted to play Uh, it was their way of of honoring him so when you don't think about winning or losing ironically winning becomes easier (laughs) Uh, so they were doing things that they probably weren't capable of I mean beating uh, Michigan 149 to 116 I mean that, that that sounds impossible but Not for them, that anything
0: was possible. So, and, and then you decide to move on after. After Loyola, to go back to the NBA, you got a chance to go for the Nuggets for two years. And, and this is when you applied the speed game to the NBA. And as someone who loves fantasy basketball as much as I do, uh, clearly I was drafting all your players. I, it was, you were great for fantasy basketball purposes because you had lost one game, 173 to 143. You set all-time records in scoring. And, uh, but it was difficult at Denver. You just didn't have the right players. You got some injuries. And you were close. You said in your book you're close to getting it working, but it just didn't, didn't click. Yeah, you know,
1: my Nuggets players did their very best. I I, I have to credit them. Uh, Most NBA teams would not have embraced fast-break basketball and full-court defense, but they did. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of quality players who were just at the end of their careers. They were in their mid to late 30s. I had Orlando Woolridge, who could score at will with my fast-break system but he was beginning to age and had Walter Davis from North Carolina, who's probably as good a shooter you'll ever see. And he could only play about 10 minutes a game. Uh, I remember one time uh, he made eight shots in a row and he put his fist up. And with Dean Smith at North Carolina, that meant I want to come out of the game, uh, but I'll come back when I want to. So I yelled at Walter I said Walter I'm not taking you out of the game until you miss. <laughs> so he made three more shots he made 11 in a row and then I took him out and but I also knew once you take him out he couldn't go back his knees just uh, stiffened
0: up on them and then you, find, you talk in your book about um that besides Louisville, amount marymount the one team that bought into your system the most was a, actually a wnba team when you won the wnba title with diana Taurasi as point guard when they totally bought into the entire speed game fast break the entire time and, and were able to lead them to a title so that was a, quite ironic that it was a wnba team that you got your uh, great success with you running the speed game
1: yeah, it's interesting. And When I won the championship with the Lakers in 1980, I thought, this is kind of easy. i will probably <laughs> do uh, more and more and more of this. Well, it took me 28 years later to win with the uh, Phoenix Mercury in the WNBA. And, and uh, the young women I had, uh, led by Diana Taurasi, they, they just were relentless in keeping uh, the fast break paramount. And I have to say, on the men's side, I had a lot of teams that after ten games, if you were three and seven, they quit on you. Mm-hmm. But the women, they didn't quit. They kept saying, "We're going to keep going, coach. We're going to get this." <laughs> and sure enough, uh, uh, they won a championship with the fast break.
0: I think your book, the the speed game, my fast times of basketball, it's available on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookstores, everything. Tremendous, e- tremendous, tremendous read. Uh, very and, and stuff that I learned that really hasn't come out before, especially the whole, the Laker, the whole situation where we, people talk about it all the time goes from your insight. So I thought that was really very interesting. Um, today's basketball game, the, the um, reliance on the three-point shot uh, just seems like every game is the Houston Rockets going down. I mean, people are comparing you to Mike D Tony, which I think is completely different if you watched your games. What do you think about today's basketball in terms of just the three-point shooting again and again?
1: Well, you know, I kind of like it. I mean, I, uh, I think it has changed the game. I think it has opened up the game. I mean, you have, uh, for example, in the Lakers, you have Anthony Davis, who runs classic fast break. Uh, uh, Miami scored a basket. He'd sprint, and they'd throw a lead lob to him, and he'd dunk the ball ahead of the defense. That's my kind of fast break. But the next play, he'd walk down the court and shoot a 35-footer and make that. <laughs> So uh, they, they've shown me things that, you know, I, I never thought of. Uh, but it, it kind of fits uh, the style of, of, of NBA players and I think college players. They would rather go half speed and win than full speed and win. Uh, the full speed is too hard for the players. So they want to take their time. Uh, but, you know, the outside shot is marvelous. I think it has really opened up the game of basketball. I, I enjoy it.
0: Is there any player that you wish that you coached that said, why this person would have totally bought into my system, like like Kimball and Gathers and Tarasi bought into my system? Yeah, it's interesting. The,
1: the one player, and he was just traded to the Washington Wizards, so I'm going to uh, uh, see how things go, uh, is Russell Westbrook. Uh, I was with. Westbrook when he was drafted in Oklahoma City. I was, uh, was the assistant coach with P.J. Carlissimo there with Durant and, and Westbrook. And I thought Westbrook was so physically strong, that was his plus, but he didn't have any outside shot and he just would put his head down and go to the basket. And I, I actually said to P.J., this young man isn't going to last because in the league when the big guys step in his way, he's going to get hurt. Well, what I didn't calculate was the big guys are afraid of him (laughs) because he'll hurt them. So it's like, get out of my way. And if you don't get out of my way, you're going to get hurt. So Westbrook would stand for, you know, my fast break style.
0: Wow. Well, I really appreciate you, Coach Westhead, uh, for coming on IRON Sports uh, your book, The Speed Game: My Fast Times in Basketball, just came out uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I think it's a, definitely a read. Anybody who likes basketball or uh, would should read this book because insight in terms of how to coach the game, and also insight in terms of how to play the game. So I really appreciate Coach Westhead for coming on Iron Sports.
1: Thanks, Ira. And you know, it's interesting. Anyone who has lost their job might want to read this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you talk about because that. I a- lost
1: mine, <laughs> but yeah, you. I- I lost mine fourteen out of twenty times. So.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. You talked about it, even with the Lakers that when you lost your job the first time, you met, you had lunch with your daughter, and your daughter is saying, "Dad, you're going to get fired today," and you're like, "I don't know about that." And I guess she was, <laughs> she was right. But uh, it she was
1: right. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks a lot. You've had a. Well, you've had well, a tre- thanks, Ira. Thank you so much. You've had a tremendous career, and it's great to read about it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. All right. Bye now.